Well, good morning, church. As always, I want to tell you that I love and appreciate you so very much. I've enjoyed going through this series with you about the Garden of Eden and thinking about how what was lost in Eden can be found in Jesus. And this morning and next week, we're going to specifically focus on the lost part of that equation. And, and we may know that what was lost was lost because of sin, right? It was lost because Adam and Eve did what they were told not to do. They ate of the tree they were told not to eat from. And, and especially when I was a kid, I, I always imagined and thought about, well, what if, what if they hadn't, right? What if they hadn't eaten of that tree? And, and what if we were still in the garden? And, and what if they, they hadn't done what they did? And wouldn't that be great and wonderful if they had never done that? But then it dawned on me over time that if they hadn't done it, and, and then generation after generation after generation after generation hadn't sinned, then it would have gotten to me, and I for sure would have messed it up, and then all y'all would have been blaming me. So I'm glad Adam and Eve took the fall, and we don't have to. But, but that's kind of the point, isn't it? Because this illustrates the fact that this is our story in more ways than one. And that's what I want us to think about this morning, that Adam and Eve's story is our story in more ways than one. In one way, it's our story because through them, sin entered the world. Because of what happened, sin and death entered the world. But that's not where the similarity ends because every single moment of every single day, this story plays out over and over again. It's played out in your life. It's played out in my life. We see the things that we're not supposed to do and maybe even we register that we're not supposed to do them and we do them anyway. And so I want us to think about what this story teaches us about sin, about temptation, about God, about forgiveness, about grace, about mercy, and about how we can resist temptation. Look at Genesis chapter 2. As we get started, before we even get to the point of the fall, we have to remind ourselves about the context. It's always about the context, isn't it? And not just the, the literary context, not just the words that surround this story, but the, the picture that we have in our mind about where this story takes place. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, and the Lord God, think on that phrase and we'll get Back to that in a second. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, now, if you notice that throughout this narrative about the Garden of Eden, specifically in this chapter, as we start to talk about the garden, this phrase for God is used, Lord God. And in your translation of the Bible, Lord might be capitalized, which is a way to indicate that this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. This is Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim, not just any Elohim, not just any God, but the covenantal God, 
the God who makes covenant, the God who is faithful, the God who is loving, the God who is long-suffering, the God who made a covenant with Israel. This is Yahweh Elohim. And Yahweh Elohim planted a garden where he put man. And in this garden, there were lots of trees. And the trees were what? They were pleasant to the sight and good for food. What does that tell us about Yahweh Elohim? Yahweh Elohim, the God, the one true living God, the God of Israel, the God who will be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who makes covenantal promises. This God is a God of abundance. This is a God of generosity. This is a God of mercy and grace. Because he gave these creations of his who had done nothing to deserve or earn this place in the garden simply out of his love and generosity he gave them this abundance this abundance these trees that are beautiful they're pleasant to the sight and they're good for food and then we skip down to verse 15 the lord god yahweh elohim took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Stop right there for a second. You may what eat? You may surely eat. And some translations say, the NIV says, You are free to eat. The New American Standard says, You may freely eat. You may surely eat. You are free to eat. You may freely eat. Again, over and over and over again, this story is telling us that Yahweh Elohim, our God, the one true living God, is a God of abundance, a God of generosity, a God who loves people, a God who gives people the freedom to eat of all of these beautiful and delicious and nutritious trees. All of this fruit, God says, look at all of this. You may surely eat. You may freely eat of every tree of the garden. The NIV says of any tree in the garden. Before we get to the prohibition, we have to recognize this is the context of the prohibition. Sometimes we just get to the rules. What can I not do? Okay, fine. Tell me what I can't do. No, wait. Before you get to the rules, you have to think about the blessings. Because the rules only make sense in the context of the blessings. That's true for Adam and Eve, and that's true for you, and that's true for me. That the, the rules only make sense in light of the blessings. He says, verse 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There's the rule. But again, we, we have to read the rule in light of the blessings, in light of the generosity that if they're going to trust God not to eat from the tree, God's saying, here's why you should trust Yahweh Elohim. Because look at all of these trees, and they're all pleasant to the sight, and they're all good for food, and you may surely, you may freely eat from every one of these trees or from any of these trees except this one. Now, that one rule and that one tree makes far more sense in light of God's abundant generosity. 
And then verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. If we're going to read the rest of the story, we have to realize this is the way that it was. No, no shame, no guilt, nothing concealed, nothing hidden. We've talked about life and abundance and ministry and the presence of God, but, but here the text reveals something else, innocence. Innocence, that, that's what humanity had in the garden. They had life and they had abundance and they had ministry and they had the presence of God and they had innocence. Can you imagine innocence? Innocence in that being completely fully exposed, nothing to hide, nothing to conceal, no secrets because nothing had been done that was wrong. Everything laid out on the table Nothing concealed. And then we get to chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now we, we may recognize that, that when the text says the serpent, that, that this is a highly symbolic animal, both in our modern context, probably because of this, but, but also in the ancient Near Eastern context, the serpent was a highly symbolic creature. And so we recognize that there's, there's more going on here than just a snake, right? And, and as we continue through the biblical narrative, and we've talked about how Revelation and Genesis pair so well together, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 says about Satan that he is the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver the deceiver of the whole world. And so we, we recognize that, that this is a, a symbol, this is a personification, this is a materialization of Satan, of the devil. And church, we have to recognize the importance of that. Because sometimes we forget when we're dealing with sin and temptation, when we're dealing with the brokenness of the world, that Satan is the enemy. Let me say that again. Satan is the enemy. And as Paul says in Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Your neighbors are not your enemies. The serpent, he's the enemy. He's the deceiver of the world. He's the enemy. He's the one against whom we struggle. And it says that this serpent is more crafty. He is skillfully deceitful. He is skillful in deceit. And we're going to see that played out as he says to the woman, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God had told them? You can't eat of any tree in the garden. Don't eat of any tree in the garden. Now, don't you suppose the serpent knows that's not true? But what, what seed is he trying to plant here? What, what is he trying to suggest here by saying, wow, there's, there's all these beautiful trees and they all look really yummy and God really said to you, you can't eat from any of those? What's God imply, or what's the serpent implying about God? God is so stingy, isn't he? 
I mean, God, he's withheld all of this. This must be hard for you to to put up with such a stingy God who doesn't want to let you eat all of this. It's a shame you can't eat any of this good fruit. Do we see how this is typically the beginning? This is where temptation usually begins, where we're doubting God's generosity, where these seeds of of doubt and distrust are planted, where we doubt that God is a generous God, that Yahweh God richly provides for his people, and we start to say, well, maybe he is kind of stingy. Maybe, maybe he really doesn't let me have all the stuff that I would like to have. Do you remember the children of Israel when they're coming out of Egyptian slavery and they're coming to the promised land, a land filled with milk and honey, and all the way there, what do they do? Complain, complain, complain. Have you brought us out here to die? We're going to starve out here. We don't have any food. We don't have any water. This is the beginning of rebellion and disobedience in their lives but also in ours this is very often where it begins isn't it yeah maybe maybe he is a little stingy of course verse 2 the woman said to the serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden neither shall you touch it lest you die now notice a couple of things first do you notice that that she omits the words that indicated how generous God had been. Do do you see the word surely there? We may surely eat of the trees. Did she say that? No, she just said, yeah, we can eat. We can eat of the trees. We can eat of them. She didn't say we may freely eat of the trees. She didn't say you may eat freely of them. She didn't say you may surely eat of them. And she doesn't use the word any or every. The way that it was originally discussed You may freely eat, you may surely eat of any of the trees, of every one of the trees. She omits those words. And so we've taken the prohibition out of the context of the generosity. And then it's interesting too that she adds, she adds that wasn't originally part of the prohibition, don't touch it. God said don't eat of it and don't touch it. Now maybe they're just being really careful, right? Well, if I shouldn't eat it, I probably shouldn't touch it either. And so maybe they're being really careful not to disobey God. Or or maybe, maybe that's an indication that that they're looking at God as if he's stricter than he really is. As if God is more strict than he actually is. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now notice the serpent is lying, right? He's lying. He says, you you will surely not die or you will not surely die. He's lying, but, but worse than that, he's calling God a liar, right? That's what the serpent's doing. The serpent isn't just lying. The serpent is calling God a liar. He's saying when God said that when you eat of this tree, you're going to die, he was lying to you. The accuser, the deceiver, the Satan, the devil, the serpent is saying God is a liar. And the reason he's lying to you is because he's withholding something good from you. He just doesn't want you to have it. 
He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know what he knows and see what he sees and understand what he understands. He doesn't want you to have the wisdom he has. And so he's lying to you in order to keep this from you. See, God warned that the fruit was full of poison. And the serpent says, no, no, the fruit is full of possibility. He's saying, just imagine what it will be like. Just imagine what you'll be like. Just imagine what you'll know. Just imagine what you'll see. And God is trying to withhold this possibility from you. And isn't that the way temptation works in our life too? We know that God warns of the poison involved in something and say, you go after that, you pursue that, you live that, you do that, you say that, you go there, there's poison in it, there's death in it, and God warns of the poison and the devil promises the possibility. And then we start to imagine the possibility and we start to doubt God and we start to distrust him. Disobedience usually begins with doubt and distrust. I think more than anything, this is what this story is teaching us. That disobedience usually begins with doubt and distrust. Well, maybe, maybe God did lie to me. Maybe that fruit isn't really full of poison. Maybe that fruit is full of possibility. You don't believe me that this is the way it works? What does scripture say about the love of money? The love of money is the root of all Evil. We know what it says, right? But then we say, but I'd still, I'd still really like it. I don't know if I love it, but I want as much of it as possible. And God says, there's poison in that. There's poison in your greed. There's poison in your covetousness. There's poison in those pursuits. And we say, well, yeah, I know. I know that's what he says, but think of all the possibilities. Think about all the good I could do. Think about what it might be like if I had this. Think about what it might be like if I could experience that. We know what we're not supposed to do with our body. And we know the warnings God's given us. And we know what it says. And we, we register it and we think about it, but then we say, well, but think about the possibilities. Think about how good this might make me feel. And it usually begins, disobedience usually begins with these seeds of doubt and distrust. Maybe God hasn't given me the whole picture. And I don't really trust that if I do things God's way, it's going to work out best for me. And so I got to watch out for me and I got to do what I need to do for me. And I got to do this so that I don't miss out on something good or miss out on something fun or miss out on something pleasurable or miss out on something that will make my life better. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now notice a few things. She notices that the tree is good for food and I just want to tell her, hold on Eve, so are all the other trees. Right? All the other trees. That's what it said about all the other trees. And she says that it's a delight to the eyes. I don't want to say, wait, weren't all the other trees pleasing to the sight? What's wrong with all the other trees? And she says that 
It's desired to make one wise. See, it's that, isn't it? It's the desire. It's the desire. The serpent didn't make anybody eat from the tree. God didn't make anybody eat from the tree. The serpent lied. The serpent deceived. The serpent was crafty. But he didn't make anybody eat from the tree. The lies played on their own desires. Their desires, which, by the way, predate the sin, right? The desire is there. And this goes hand in hand with what James says about temptation. He says, when you're tempted, don't say God's tempting me. Every one of us is tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own sinful desires. That's what the lies do, don't they? That's what the deceit does. That's what the doubt does. That's what the distrust does. It plays on our desires. And we say, I I sure would like to have that. I sure would like to experience that. Think about all the possibilities. Think about how good it would feel. Think about what I would know. Think about what I would experience. And she she took of the fruit and ate. And then it says, she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, isn't it interesting that when Paul talks about sin and how sin and death came into the world, Paul always says that sin came into the world through whom? Adam, right? Adam. And you say, wait a second, hold on. Eve ate the fruit first, right? Eve ate the fruit first. Then why did sin come into the world through Adam? Well, Adam didn't eat first, but Adam failed first. I'm convinced Adam didn't eat first, but he failed first. Because Adam was the not only the man, but he was the first given the responsibility. He was told, this is your family, and you protect your family. You not only keep and guard the garden, but you keep and guard your family. So as soon as Eve was deceived and she ate of that fruit, Adam failed. He failed before he ever participated and ate the fruit for himself. He failed because he failed in his responsibility to guard the garden and to guard his family. And sin and death came into his family, and that includes you and me. Adam failed you and me too. As our great, 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 great grandpa, he failed all of us to guard us. He was supposed to exercise dominion over the beasts of the field, but instead he allowed his family to be deceived and he allowed his family to fall into sin and death and the responsibility lies with him. Because he was the man, he was the head, he was the firstborn, he was the oldest. It was his responsibility, and he failed. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? You know, it's interesting, I was thinking this morning, was it good? What did it taste like? What kind of fruit was it? We always say apple. We don't know apple. Did it taste good? Was it at least yummy? We don't know. Whatever pleasure they experienced in that moment, whatever knowledge they gained in that moment, whatever positives 
they might have experienced in that moment. All the possibilities that they dreamed about are like, we're going to be like God. All they could see afterwards was their own nakedness, their own shame, their own humiliation. And so much for being like God, they can't even make a good pair of pants afterwards. And we know this experience, don't we? We know this experience. This experience of standing on the precipice, standing at the fork, at the fork in the road, standing there and saying, should I or shouldn't I? I know I probably shouldn't, and I know the warnings. I know what my mama said, and I know what God said, and I know I shouldn't do this. And we do it anyway because we think it's going to feel good or I'm going to experience this or I'm going to know this or I'm going to have this or I can do this. And we do it anyway. And afterwards, all we can see is our own shame. And even at this moment, you may be thinking about something you looked at or something you said or something you did. And maybe it was today, or maybe it was yesterday, or maybe it was 20 years ago. And when you think back to that moment, all you can feel and all you can see is your own nakedness and shame. And try as you might, you can't cover it. Try as you might, you can't atone for what you've done. You can't cover your own shame. This is our story in more ways than one. This is our story in more ways than one. First of all, it's our story individually. We've all been deceived by Satan's lies. We've all doubted and distrusted God. We've all been dragged away and enticed by our own sinful desires. We have seen our shame and we have tried in vain to cover our guilt our shame, and our embarrassment. But this is why we've been saying, church, since we started this story, that what was lost in Eden can be found in Jesus because Jesus can cover our shame. In fact, the word atonement, you've heard that really churchy word before, atonement. To atone for means to cover over. The day of atonement that Israel used to celebrate every year was a day where they celebrated God covering over their shame. And Jesus is our day of atonement. Jesus covers over our sin and shame. You can't, so stop trying. Your futile attempts to try to cover your own shame by making yourself loincloths out of fig leaves it's just as silly when we try to do it as it was when they tried to do it. We can't cover over our shame, but Jesus can. But Jesus can. So this is our story individually, but it's also our story collectively. It's our story collectively because Adam's failure in his firstborn responsibilities to guard humanity from the schemes of Satan resulted in sin and death for the entire world. He was supposed to protect us too, future generations, and he didn't. And sin and death entered the world through Adam. But here's where the gospel comes in. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus is the second Adam. 
Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the final Adam. Jesus is the new Adam. He is, Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, he is the firstborn of a new humanity. You see? Jesus is the one who can help us find what was lost in Eden. Jesus is the new Adam, the firstborn of a new humanity. Jesus, even though he was innocent, took responsibility for humanity's sin, right? That's what Jesus did. Adam didn't live up to his responsibility. He didn't exercise dominion over the beasts of the field. He didn't protect his family from sin. But the new Adam, the new firstborn of humanity, said, I haven't done any of that personally, but I'll take all of it on myself. I'll take responsibility for all their sin. All my new brothers and sisters, I'll take responsibility for all of their sin. And finally, Jesus will ultimately succeed where Adam failed by crushing the serpent, right? That's what the book of Revelation is all about, how ultimate victory is through Jesus, how everything that's lost in Eden can be found in Christ. He is our new Adam. He is the new firstborn of humanity. He's the one to take responsibility for our sins and our failings, take them on himself, die for us to atone for or cover up our sin and shame and guilt, and ultimately destroy the works of Satan. That's the good news, church. So that we, we don't have to leave here trying to cover ourselves with fig leaves. Trying to say, well, you know, but I've done some good stuff too, and maybe I can cover up some of my shame and guilt with some of the good stuff I've done. Nonsense. It's just as silly when you do it as it was when they did it. You can't cover over your sin and shame, but Jesus can. Jesus is the new Adam, the final Adam, the new firstborn of humanity, the one who will guard and take responsibility for us. So here's what I want us to ask ourselves as we close. After all the Lord has done for us, why would we doubt him? See, that's the question that Adam and Eve should have asked themselves. Yahweh Elohim, after all that he's done for us, how can we doubt him? This serpent says, maybe God's a little stingy. Maybe God's lying to you. Maybe God's keeping something good for you. What Adam should have stepped up and said was, after all the Lord has done for us, how could we doubt him? It would have changed everything, wouldn't it? After how generous he's been. After giving us innocence and life and abundance and ministry and his own presence. How could we doubt him? Because if it wasn't for the doubt and it wasn't for the distrust, it probably never would have been disobedience. And the same is true in my life. And I dare you to try it in yours. I dare you this week, as you're tempted to look at things you shouldn't look at or go places you shouldn't go or do things you shouldn't do or treat people in ways you shouldn't treat them, as you're tempted, as you're being dragged away and enticed by your own sinful desires, ask yourself this question. Ask yourself, after all the Lord has done for us, how could we doubt him? And I don't just mean what he's done for you personally. I mean, after all that Jesus has done for you. Satan says he doesn't love you. 
Satan says he doesn't care about you. Satan says he won't punish you. Satan says it doesn't really matter to God what's going on in your life. But Jesus comes and he says nothing could be further from the truth. I know every sparrow that falls to the ground. I know every every hair on your head. And I love you so much, I'm going to give my life for you. And so we have to ask ourselves every time we're tempted, after all the Lord has done for me, how could I doubt him? After all the Lord has done for us, how could we doubt him? When we're baptized into Jesus, that's what we're communicating, isn't it? That we trust him. We trust him. I trust you. I trust you to cover my sin and shame. And I trust you that after I come up out of this watery grave, I'm going to live a different kind of life. And I trust you that your way is the best way. It's weird. I'll give you that. It's weird. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Forgive those who harm you. Pray for those who persecute you. It's weird. But the question is, do you trust him? Or do you doubt him? We all need encouragement from each other, don't we? Trust the Lord. After all the Lord has done for you, how could we doubt him? And if you're ready to put your trust in Jesus by being baptized into Christ so that your sins can be atoned for, you can be covered over, your shame and guilt can be taken care of, or you need to come back to the Lord or you need prayers or encouragement, our shepherds will meet with you after service in the prayer room or right now, you can come forward as together we stand and sing this song.